This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The all-important word, becoming convinced of his preeminence. Preeminence is a good word. We usually use the word prominence today. It means coming first. It is the first thing. And so if you've ever heard me teach on how to study scripture, you need to understand what is first in scripture. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Every text you look at, you're looking to see Jesus. Everything that is taking place in that is meant to show you a person, not just some grand moral scheme, not some ethical uh, concept. It's to show you a person. And so he has the preeminence in the Bible and technically, according to Scripture, in all things. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Now, for those of you that know that Jesus historically was born 2,000 years ago, that's a little confusing. He is before all things? What? How can he be before all things? I can think of a whole bunch of things that happened. There's at least 4,000 years of Earth's history that took place before that. Yeah, that's because you don't realize that he's God. He's God who condescended to be born. And as a result, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth that humbled himself to come and rescue us. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So the five fingers is, I called it that in one of my messages. I can't necessarily say that the pastoral staff called it that. That was one of my messages. But it's a good, good, powerful illustration. Now many of you have heard me talk about the invisible hand. This is invisible. You guys can't see it right now. It's a symbol of God, okay? God is like an invisible hand. I, I liken that to grace. You see, God is invisible. You know that it says no man has seen God at any time? Isn't that a strange statement? You're like, well, what about Jesus? But Jesus has revealed him. You see, Jesus took on our form. We are created in the image of the invisible. And Jesus, being the perfect glove, rested his life upon that invisible hand and perfectly revealed what the hand was doing. See, if there's no glove on here, you can't see when it points to Ronnie. And Ronnie has no idea that the, that hand is pointing at him unless there's a glove. You stick a glove on that, and now suddenly Ronnie's like, uh, someone's pointing at me, guys. You see, that's the way it is with God. God wants to communicate with us, but he's invisible. So what he's done is his word has rested upon him and revealed him. That which is invisible has been revealed. How? Through his word. Okay, so we have the word of God in text. These are what I would call the five fingers of what we exist for as the body of Christ. This is the essence of Christianity right here. The word of God in text, the Bible. Okay, that's the first finger. I mean, this is, how, does, how do we know God? Well, we need that expression. The word of God in person, Jesus Christ. The word of God in action, the cross. That, those first three are literally the basis of our faith. When the enemy seeks to undermine, what does he seek to undermine? Right there. He goes right at the root. If he can hinder that root, he hinders everything else. Now, where does that flow into? The word of God in us. Isn't that an incredible thought? That the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God desires to move in and take this body and make it his. So what is the result of that? The word of God through us. Very simply put, love. This is what we are known for, people. This is the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. Those that are filled with the Holy Spirit to reveal the kingdom of heaven. The love of Jesus Christ. The nature of the King Almighty. So how do we get that fully functional? We better get those first three down. And how do you get those first three down? You better protect the first. You see, we protect the first one on that list because all of the others flow out of it like a river. And when we lose the first, eh, everything else falls to pieces. Rightly handling the word. Very simply put, how we handle the word of God in text is how we are handling the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. 
So I want you to ponder that. If you desire to honor your king, to show him proper due and deference, well, then you show him proper due and deference by honoring his word. That's how we show honor to him. The way you want to treat Jesus, treat the word that way. You honor that word. You bend your knee before it and declare it Lord over your life. What it says goes. It is correct. It is truth. And anything inside of you that would dare think more highly of itself and that thought than what the word of God says, you're the one that's wrong, people. Truth is not welcomed in our culture right now. I don't know if you guys have figured that one out. However, we are the bearers of it. And so we must fully recognize that in a culture that is rejecting truth, they will reject the truth bearers. Just sign up for it correctly. Just make sure you've counted the cost. When you put your name on this list and say, I I follow Jesus, you need to know what comes with it. However, it's only truth that sets people free. That's the only thing in all the world that will set people free. Therefore, because we love, we have to bear the truth. We have to give the truth, even though it makes people feel uncomfortable. If we diminish the word of God in text, we will diminish the word of God in person. If we challenge the word of God in text, we will challenge the word of God in person. If we remove the divinity, that's the godness, from the word of God in text, we will remove the divinity or the godness from the word of God in person. You take away the godness from Jesus, and suddenly you only have a noble act of a man giving himself up and sacrificing himself as an example for us. There is no power to save. You do not touch the godness of Jesus Christ. So... As a result, if I want to defend the godness of Jesus Christ, what else do I need to defend the godness of? The word of God in text. So I'm going to do a little of that. The three high alert attack points. In this next month, possibly, likely, we're going to need to address as a church some of the key attack points that are coming against us as the body. In our conservative Bible-believing circles, there are very sharp attacks that are coming against us. So to be able to better prepare our understanding for why we as the leadership of this church feel it's important to actually clarify some of the key battlefronts today, it's over these three things, okay? These are typically where the devil is going to start. You see, he's going to start with the word of God in text. Do you remember how the serpent hanging from that tree uh, started? Did God really say that? Took the word of God... And he questioned it. It's exactly what the devil does. Still does the same thing today. So the godness of the text is one of the three high alert attack points. This is from God. It's God's word. This is a massive attack point. All you have to do is hang out in Christianity today. How many pastors are buckling under on that point? It's like, come on. This is the basis of Christianity. It's always been this way. How could you even question that? I I have such a strong foundation of faith in my confidence in the word of God in text. I mean, I'm just unbudgeable. You come up and shove me on that one and you'll fall over. It's just like, I'm not moving. Guys, I have such a confidence. I know where this book comes from. I spend my life in this book. People say, oh, there's inconsistencies. Yeah, you're obviously not studying it. You study this book and you don't see inconsistencies. You see supernatural revelation. The more you study it, the more you get out of it. You read a novel over and over again and see how much more you get out of it. You read the Bible and there's layer and layer and layer and layer. The Spirit of God who breathed it is the same one who will carry you through in an endless adventure in one verse for the rest of your life. It's incredible. So that's one of the attack points. The second one is the preservation of the text. I'm not trying to use big sounding terms, but preservation of the text. Listen, I'm trying to put it in layman's terms next to it. The text today is the same as back then. It hasn't altered. We have the full text of Scripture. All that God intended to give us, we have. And it's the same today as it was when it was originally given. Yes, there's an attack on this point, and there's deliberate attempts to change the text of Scripture. That's very prevalent today, probably in our generation more than any generation previous. However, the text today is the same as back then. It hasn't altered. Hey, I'm going to camp there, guys. That's something I feel very strongly about. In other words, what I'm reading today isn't some newfangled idea. This is the, this is the actual words, okay? The word-for-word translation of it in, in the best I have. And I can actually go back to the original language of what it was said. Now, here's a key one. And this is one that is under high-level alert status right now. 
the sufficiency of the text. There is no more text needed. We have been given all that is necessary. And that's understanding the transition from Jesus to the apostles. And what the apostles had in the first generation as far as their responsibility to write down what we can call the pattern for how the church was going to be built. Today, we have new text that is being given to the body of Christ. New text. I think we have the second half of the book of John that just was released. Uh Uh-huh. Just was released. The Holy Spirit is carrying along some new writer today to write it. We have people that are giving text of Scripture today. This is in the conservative realm of Christianity. They have a high view of God, but a higher view of what they are writing than the text of Scripture. And so as a result, we are under siege in the realm of Christendom right now on these points. Now, I'm not saying we haven't been in the past. I'm saying this is high red alert status. And many of us in this room are being exposed to this stuff because of the vast connectivity of the internet. We have connection to a lot of bad teaching very quickly. And if we don't have our discernometer up, whoa, we're actually undermining the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross unwittingly. We don't recognize what is happening. So I wrote an article that was never released, and I figured, you know what, maybe I should release it right now. Release it in a sermon. It's a, it's a good article. Washington and the Word, can the two ever be reunited? Every Tuesday and Thursday, and this was written a couple years ago, so my kids were a little younger. Every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, I have daddy training time with my six kiddos. In these past two weeks, my training has been specifically themed around the two thrilling themes of the presidents of the United States and the Bible. With all the separation of church and state rhetoric flying around these past decades here in America, my purposeful combining of these two seemingly opposite, opposing topics might be deemed by some to be dangerous, disconcerting, and unconstitutional. But my kids have loved it, and strangely, they don't see any opposition between these two flavorful themes. And why should they? Wasn't it George Washington that said it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible? And didn't John Adams declare so great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens in their country and respectful members of society? Didn't our first two presidents understand the separation of church and state? At breakfast this morning, I introduced my kids to William Henry Harrison, the ninth president of the United States. You know, the guy that died 32 days into his term due to pneumonia. My children were greatly intrigued by the story. After adding President Harrison to our list, Avonlea, my six-year-old, was chosen to repeat for Daddy the first nine presidents in chronological order. When she got to number six, she paused. For some reason, she has really struggled with the name John Quincy Adams. She knows he's the son of the second president, John Adams, but for some reason, John Quincy sounds very different inside her brain than does just plain John. She also knows that the sixth president's first name is the same name as one of my wife's two brothers, Uncle David or Uncle John. So with all that data clearly organized inside her little mind, her pronouncement of the name of the sixth president came flying out with all the bravado of a knowing scholar. David Crinky Adams, she confidently declared. It was the sort of answer that a daddy loves and that a daddy needs to find either a sermon, a blog, a book, or an article to fit it in so as never to forget it. Thanks for allowing me to anchor it right here. When teaching history, we can oftentimes emphasize people and events. We memorize dates, names, and timelines, and in so doing, we sometimes lose sight of the beliefs that these people had and how they said beliefs, how those said beliefs affected or infected those key events of history. Here in America, the deep beliefs of our forefathers and those stalwart statesmen of our earliest era reveal the reasons for our country's vast success. And these said beliefs weren't just of the common declaration of independence variety, including such favorite ideals as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They were even grander than that. They were beliefs about Jesus Christ, his saving work on the cross, and the trustworthiness and God-authorship of the Bible that revealed this Christ and his redemptive work. The American experiment in its origins was decidedly Christian, decidedly Christ-centered, and decidedly Bible-believing. We weren't just advocates for religious freedom here in early America, but we were decidedly biased as to the religious freedom of man to pursue, know, and proclaim the God of the Bible. It's difficult for many Americans nowadays to comprehend the Christian nature of our country's heritage. The secularization of this country has been thorough, and the forceful elimination of our 400-year Christian root system has been brilliantly and cunningly deployed. It's amazing, but president after president throughout American history was willing to go on record and declare their confidence, devotion, and esteem for the Bible. But few of the deeply Christian, Christian quotes from our previous presidents are commonly heard these days. Here are a few for instances. John Quincy Adams declared that it was his custom to read the Bible in its entirety once a year. Andrew Jackson declared the Bible was the rock on which the republic rested. Abraham Lincoln declared that he believed the Bible to be the best gift God had ever given to man. 
Ulysses Grant pronounced that America was indebted to the Bible for the progress made in civilization and that we must look to the Bible as our guide in the future. William McKinley said that the more profoundly we study the Bible and the more closely we observe its divine precepts, the better citizens we will become and the higher will be our destiny as a nation. Being a pastor and a leader of a Bible training program, possibly my favorite endorsement for the text of Scripture comes from Theodore Roosevelt, who pronounced that a thorough understanding of the Bible is better than a college education. That's a pitch for Ellerslie, by the way. (laughs) Woodrow Wilson felt sorry for men who didn't read the Bible every day. Herbert Hoover declared that those that are looking for guidance in the issues of law, business, and morals ought to look inside the cover of the Bible to find illumination. Harry S. Truman propounded that the fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teaching we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. And Ronald Reagan made the lofty declaration that of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. The normal, everyday, public-schooled American will never know about Washington's deep faith, John Adams' esteem of the Bible, Lincoln's passion for the person of Jesus Christ, nor Teddy Roosevelt's conviction that no other form of education was superior to that of biblical training. Unless a father deliberately takes time with his kids to impart to them the link between Washington and the Word, they simply will never know it. We have quite a history as a nation, but in our modern times we have shifted away from this foundational thought. My kids are growing up in an age where it is more socially acceptable and correct to question the integrity, accuracy, and truthfulness of the Bible than to simply believe it is, in fact, God's Word, inspired, preserved, and promoted by the Holy Spirit Himself. If you wish to advance in government, business, law, education, entertainment these days, then it really helps to have a cynic's view of the text of Scripture. How did the serpent say it in the garden? Did God really say that? That is precisely the question of our modern day. Did God really say that? My answer to that ridiculous question is quite simple. Of course he said it. I would never ask someone to believe the word of God simply due to the fact that some great men believed it to be God's word. But that said, it sure doesn't hurt to hear it. Many of the highest intelligent quotients in history centered their education and life pursuits around the Bible. For instance, Bacon, Mendel, Planck, Kepler, Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, Pascal, and Faraday all held the centrality of the word of God in their thinking, reasoning, and discovery. Many of the greatest inventors in history, such as Pasteur, Carver, Fleming, Kelvin, Gutenberg, held to the same. Even Bach, one of the world's greatest composers, considered his prime motivation the glory and knowledge of Jesus Christ. While many of the greatest world leaders like Wilberforce, Washington, Lincoln, and Churchill viewed the word of God as God's revealed truth and the requisite centerpiece for the proper ruling of nations. Again, your faith shouldn't rest upon the fact that these great men believe this to be true. However, the fact that this stunning information has been so systematically removed from our society today should cause you to raise the eyebrow of your soul and ask why. For one of the greatest proofs of the reality of the God authorship of the Bible is the simple fact that there is such a huge battle over this book. If it were merely a great epic literary work of a dead man, there would be simply no debate over it. But alas, it is not merely the ramblings of a lunatic, but the unchanging, undying truth of the creator of the heavens and the earth. I've put together a modern adaptation of an amazing Winston Churchill quote to add the finishing touches to this article. I desire leaders like this to once again arise. My middle name is Winston, so I'm very proud of uh, this quote here. This is a good one. We reject with scorn all those learned and labored myths that diminish the Bible's stories and characters as mere legend. We believe that the most scientific view, the most up-to-date and rationalistic conception will find its fullest satisfaction in taking the Bible story literally. We remain unmoved by the scholarly writings and philosophic rants of the modern-day men of science and learning. We may be sure that all these things the Bible says happened and happened just as they are set out according to the Holy Scriptures. We may believe that they happened to people not so very different from ourselves and that the impressions those people received were faithfully recorded and have been transmitted across the centuries with far more accuracy than many of the news printed accounts we read going on today. Boy, is that an understatement. In the words of a forgotten work of Mr. Gladstone, we rest with assurance upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture. Let the men of science and learning expand their knowledge and probe with all their researching acumen every detail of the records which have been preserved to us from these dim ages. All they will do is to fortify the grand simplicity and essential accuracy of the recorded truths which have lighted so far the pilgrimage of man. But for you to reach that conclusion, which is utterly obvious to me, this is me writing again, by the way. I I wouldn't mind you thinking it was Winston Churchill. I mean, I am Eric Winston. but, But for you to reach that conclusion, which is utterly obvious to me, I would like to supply you with some of my reasoning. And it's not just that George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Ronald Reagan all considered the Bible true and divine. It goes ways, ways. It goes way beyond that. 
I call these the 10 simple proofs. These are 10 reasons why the Bible is, in fact, the actual word of God. The 10 simple proofs. I could say that even a child can understand. There is one of them that's a bit complex. But they're good. Proof number one. This book is supernaturally built. Sir Walter Scott says it this way, the most learned, acute, and diligent student cannot in the longest life obtain an entire knowledge of this one volume. The most deeply he works the mind, the richer and more abundant he finds the ore. New light continually beams from this source of heavenly knowledge to direct the conduct and illustrate the work of God and the ways of men. And he will at last leave the world confessing that the more he studied the scriptures, the fuller conviction he had of his own ignorance and of their inestimable value. So I have other messages which go into great detail into each of these things. Since we have a lot today, I've trimmed this down to the the bare bones. The Bible's pedigree is astounding. Written over a 1,400-year span over 40 generations. I don't think many of us ever just stop and think about how profound that is. A book that is compiled over 1,400 years by, well, you're going to see in the next line, over 40 authors. Written by over 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc. There is no book like this in all of history, none, that even comes close that is written over that period of time by such an eclectic mix from high society to the lowest. Who were its writers? Here's only a mere sampling. Moses, a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter, a fisherman. Amos, a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, a cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. Where was it written? Again, only a mere sampling. Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel on a hillside in a palace, Paul inside a prison of prison walls, Luke while traveling, John on the Isle of Patmos, others in the rigors of a military campaign. 1,400 years, 40 generations, over 40 authors, and the entire book perfectly agrees with itself. You figure that one out. It's 66 books all saying the same thing. They all point to the exact same thing. There is a day that will come And there will be a man. And in that day, he will do a work in that day that will change the course of history. He will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Who is this man? Well, over here we find out that he's born of a virgin. He's the seed of a woman. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They will cast lots for his clothing. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. His sides will be be pierced. His hands and his feet will be pierced. Who is this guy? What day is it talking about? You happen to know the answer to that question. This whole book, written over 1,400 years by over 40 authors, says the same thing. Proof number two, it performs what it promises. So the Messiah test, the students uh, went through what we call the canon test, and where the Old Testament basically is given a test. It says this is who the Messiah is, and when he comes, he must match this perfectly. He has to be of a very specific lineage. He has to be of the body of David. He has to be of the kingly line of David. You know that Mary, his mother, is of the Davidic line in her body, bloodline-wise. So, Jack, you know that Joseph is of the lineage of kings? Joseph! They didn't have kings at the time when Jesus was born, right? Joseph was the heir to the kingly title of Judah. So guess who received it? The firstborn son, who is just by adoption in Joseph's life. Jesus. Jesus is, in fact, legally the king of the Jews. Whoa! Uh Uh-huh. All of this had to be fact. He had to be born in a very specific spot. Yet Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. He has to be born in Bethlehem. Uh Uh-oh. Mary's great with child. How are we going to pull this off? Caesar Augustus gets a little greedy. Hey, you know, I need to see how many people are in my land and so I can tax them. So everyone gets called back to the city of their forefathers. Joseph being... A descendant of David is called back to Bethlehem. At the very time, Mary's like, honey, this isn't a good time. (laughs) Every single thing, when you set Jesus up against the Old Testament, all you can say is, whoa, whoa. He matches everything. And guess what? There's no human that could ever pull it off. No human. The the test is impossible. So impossible that the Jews actually believe there had to be two messiahs. 
Even though it only says there's one, there had to be two. Why? Because no one can be a priest and a king simultaneously. That's impossible. How would his father be God and yet he still have the kingly title? How is this supposed to work? Everything about it was impossible and yet his father is God. He does have the kingly title and he is born from the body of David. Everything is true. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This is written 750 years before Jesus. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is, in fact, with us. Written 750 years before Jesus, the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Written a thousand years before Jesus Christ. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. What I could do is just stop the message right now and go, any questions? This book is supernatural. It keeps its promises. When it says something will happen, guess what? It happens every single time. Cyrus the king. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus would destroy seemingly impregnable Babylon and subdue Egypt along with most of the rest of the known world. This same man, said Isaiah, would decide to let the Jewish exiles in his territory go free without any payment of ransom. And we could all say, yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh. Isaiah made this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was born. 180 years before Cyrus performed any of these feats, and he did eventually perform them all, and 80 years before the Jews were taken into exile. Josiah the king. One unnamed prophet of God declares that a future king of Judah named Josiah would take the bones of all the occultic priests, priests of the high places of of Israel's king Jeroboam, and burn them on Jeroboam's altar. This event occurred approximately 300 years after it was foretold. I mean, we could go on and on. That's, that's the whole Bible. That's the makeup of it. Proof number three. God himself declares it to be a supernatural revelation. Well, in, in and of itself, that, that should be a pretty good one. God himself is saying, hey, guys, this is supernatural. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it was breathed by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For the word, the logos of God, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I mean, you could read Homer's Iliad, but I don't think Homer's Iliad could be described this way. See, it's not just the literary work of men, or even 40 men. This is the literary work of God who carried along men to write it. The fact that God chose to use men does not diminish the godness of this book. It's written by men, carried along by God. Yes, you could say Luke wrote the book of Luke, carried along by God. It is still God's word. Proof number four, though strong empires have sought to destroy it, no one has been able to stamp it out. Now think about it. It's a book. Strong empires have sought to defeat this book, to destroy it, to remove it from circulation. H.L. Hastings. I had a whole bunch of quotes for this. I trimmed them down to just two. These, oh, they were some good ones too. Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting, this is a while ago still, have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book still lives. 
Bernard Ram says, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knived, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or Bell's letters of classical or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible? With such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet. And yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. Proof number five. It has been better preserved than any book in history. I wish I could take more time on this one. This is one that is a little more complex. But the archaeological manuscript evidence behind this book is so far outweighing any other piece of literature that is never questioned in its accuracy. Most people don't wake up and say, Aristotle, I bet, didn't say that. No one even thinks the thought. This has so much backing for its integrity of manuscript transmission throughout the ages, and everyone questions the validity of it. Why? Because it's God's book, and people love darkness more than the light. Being written on this is Josh McDowell, being written on material that perishes and having been copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press did not diminish the style, correctness, or existence of the Bible. Compared with other ancient writings, it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. Proof number six, it is astoundingly accurate in its histories and accounts. It is not a history book, but boy, is it accurate in its history. In other words, it's a book defines the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. But it contains history, and its history is accurate. In all my, this is the Nelson Gluck, a former president of the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. In all my archaeological investigation, I've never found one artifact of antiquity, that's ancient history, that contradicts any statement of the word of God. Robert Dick Wilson, this guy's just fascinating. Uh, listen to his description. Famous linguist, master of 45 ancient languages. Boy, I don't know if any of us are a master of one. 45 and scholar of ancient manuscripts. Listen to what uh, Robert Dick Wilson says. There are about 40 of these kings living from 2000 BC to 400 BC. Each appears in chronological orders, talking about the kings of Judah and Israel in the Bible with reference to the kings of the same country and with respect to the kings of other countries. No stronger evidence for the substantial accuracy of the Old Testament records could possibly be imagined than this collection of kings. Mathematically, it is one chance on 750, massive number, a whole bunch of zeros, that this accuracy is mere circumstance. And that's just one singular evidence in the Bible is its recordings of kings, not just the kings of Israel and Judah, but the surrounding kings. No other history account has been kept, but anytime you dig up archaeology anywhere, it matches what the Bible says. This Bible, this book is actually correct, which meant it has to be it had to be written not in one little collection where a whole bunch of gray-headed men got together and said, let's make up a book. It had to be written in those subsequent time periods. To be accurate. Proof number seven. I love this one. This is actually one of the most staggering proofs of the Bible. And yet it takes a bit for it to sink in. It's too honest to be human. You know that there are no other historical accounts of nations that even come close to resembling the Bible. This is a historical account of a nation, a nation's histories. And yet every other recorded history was assigned by a monarch, a king, to be written, to show their glowing qualities. So it always shows the virtue of the leaders. Every other historical account would do that that was commissioned by a nation to be written, except for one, the Bible. And what does the Bible show? The weakness of its leaders. It just says it straight up. This guy sinned. (laughs) That's what I mean. David, their great hero. What does it do? It exposes his weakness. I mean, cover that up, guys. This is their national hero. Even to this day, you ask any Jew, they love David, and yet the Bible exposes his weakness. Whoa. John Wesley, this is a great quote, by the way, guys. This book had to be written by one of three people, good men, bad men, or God. It couldn't have been written by good men because they said it was inspired by the revelation of God. Good men don't lie and deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would not write something that would condemn themselves. 
it leaves only one conclusion. It was given by divine inspiration of God. But don't you wish our brains worked that simply? (laughs) Proof number eight. The power of darkness stands virulently against this book. That's a proof. Hey, if this is just some writing of men, who cares? In fact, if it's, if the devil should be happy about it. Hey, spread this thing around if it's a bunch of lies, if it's misleading. Instead, he stands dead set against it. That's a proof. The powers of darkness have been attempting to snuff it out, discredit it, and undermine its credibility since the beginning. Why not pick on the books of Homer, Sophocles, Lysidides, Cicero, or Virgil? Why? How many times do you ever hear that, hey, you can't trust those books? Why? Why is it the Bible? What is it about the Bible that deserves such spite, such hate, such opposition? Is it that it teaches love, kindness, and mercy? Is it that it commands equity and justice? Is it that it gives hope, ministers peace, and offers salvation? If this book was just a simple literary anthology of wise thoughts, it would not receive the attacks it has received. Proof number nine. Simply put, this book changes lives. You trust it, it changes you. You see, that's a hard one to convince someone out there, but hey, we're not out there right now. We're right here. And what can we say? Whenever I've believed these words, whenever I've given my life to follow them, they set me free every single time. You see, these aren't just mere words. This isn't just a philosophy. This is the truth of God's kingdom. This is who he is. He's revealed himself to us. And when we believe, we live. You sin, you die. You believe, you live. The two competing laws. If you choose to live in your sin, you will continually die. An ever-increasing death in this mortal body, ultimately a death forever, all eternity a separation from life. But when you simply humble yourself, you turn and believe, the signs of life begin to show in your life. What is that? Well, it's a proof, guys. It's a proof that this book is not just a book written by men. It is God's book. The great Christian men and women from history past all agree that if you heed its words, if you believe its content, and if you obey its commands, you really do live. Living testimony right here. It's hard to shut me up on this point. I have been completely altered by this book. This book has changed my life, and the more I study it, the more life I have, the more joy I have, the more love I have. A book? How did a book do that to me? It's not just the text. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit, the very life of God, inspired this text, carries this text to me to write it upon my soul, to write it upon my life, to change me, to be like it. It is a supernatural process. It is not just me reading. It is the Holy Spirit lifting and implanting. Proof number 10. Men and women throughout history have gladly died to preserve its every jot and tittle. It's pretty compelling, guys. When people will die because of how much they hold to this book. You know that there's... I don't know how many people you've ever heard of that will die for uh, some writing of Aristotle, some writing of Homer, People will lay down their lives to defend the integrity of this book and the right for others to read it. This is a a great quote. I prefer to believe those writers who get their throats cut for what they write. Hey, that's a good point. And it's not just the original writers who were willing to die, but throughout history, the men and women that that read these words and believed these words were so transformed by these words that they too were willing to suffer cruel deaths and endure great privations in order to preserve the integrity of every word within the Bible. So I, I always like to throw in a bonus proof, because even though it, you know, it doesn't fall into the logical sequence of the first ten, to me, it's golden. Bonus proof number 11. I, Eric Ludi, have been personally changed by this book. That's proof. You may not validate that proof because you haven't been changed by it, but guess what? When you're changed by it, that's a proof. This book is everything to me. I love this book. I want you to love this book. When you see a great movie, what do you do? You evangelize. You tell people about that great book. Or did I say book? Movie? Which one am I on? Book or movie here? (laughs) Movie, okay. When you see a great movie, you want everyone else to see it. 
When you read a good book, you buy stacks of them and hand them out. Why? That's how we function. When you get to know this book, you can't help but take that which is in it and give it. When it changes you, you have to share it. Doesn't that explain why I'm standing up here right now? I've been changed by this. This isn't a job that I have. It's like, oh, I need to put in my time. I need to work for the church. This is what I'm compelled to do. Try and keep this trap shut. That's hard, guys. When the living word is burning within me. I have personally witnessed its power in my life. I've personally stood in awe at its complexity yet simplicity of focus. This book, you could study it for the rest of your life and still not even touch it. It's like the tip of an iceberg. And yet, a little child can understand the entire thing. Jesus, for God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. A child can understand, but that the depths of that as revealed in scripture. You can turn to every story and see that unfolded at a greater level. So we can understand it in its simplicity and unless we become as little children, we can't even see it in its simplicity. But we can accept it in its simplicity and then grow in the complexities and cherish the nuance of it for the rest of eternity. So I wanted to finish by reading something from Richard Fales. Uh, it's called Archaeology and History Attest to the Reliability of the Bible. It's just extremely fascinating. No other ancient book is questioned or maligned like the Bible. Critics looking for the fly speck in the masterpiece allege that there was a long span between the time the events in the New Testament occurred and when they were recorded. They claim another gap exists archaeologically between the earliest copies made and the autographs of the New Testament. In reality, the alleged spaces and so-called gaps exist only in the minds of the critics. Manuscript evidence. Aristotle's Ode to Poetics was written between 384 and 322 BC. The earliest copy of this work dates A.D. 1100. It's a long time. And there are only 49 extant manuscripts. The gap between the original writing and the earliest copy is 1,400 years. There are only seven extant manuscripts of Plato's Tetralogies written 427 to 347 BC. The earliest copy is A.D. 900, the gap of over 1,200 years. What about the New Testament? Jesus was crucified in A.D. 30, or thereabouts. The New Testament was written between A.D. 48 and 95. The oldest manuscripts date to the last quarter of the first century, and the second oldest, A.D. 125. This gives us a narrow gap of 35 to 40 years from the originals written by the apostles. From the early centuries, we have some 5,300 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, altogether including Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic. We have a whopping 24,633 texts of the ancient New Testament to confirm the wording of the scriptures. So the bottom line is, there was no great period between the events of the New Testament and the New Testament writings. Nor is there a great time lapse between the original writings and the oldest copies. With the great body of manuscript evidence, it can be proved beyond a doubt that the New Testament says exactly the same things today as it originally did nearly 2,000 years ago. Corroborative, corroborative, corroborating writings. Critics also charge that there are no ancient writings about Jesus outside the New Testament. This is another ridiculous claim. Writings confirming his birth, ministry, death, and resurrection include Flavius Josephus, the Babylonian Talmud, Pliny the Younger's letter to the Emperor Trajan, the Annals of Tacitus, Marabar Serapion, and Suetonius, Life of Claudius, and Life of Nero. Another point of contention arises when Bible critics have knowingly or unknowingly misled people by implying that Old and New Testament books were either excluded from or added into the canon of Scripture at the great ecumenical councils of AD 336, 382, 397, and 419. In fact, one result of these gatherings was to confirm the church's belief that the books already in the Bible were divinely inspired. Therefore, the church at these meetings neither added nor took away from the books of the Bible. At that time, the 39 Old Testament books had already been accepted, and the New Testament, as it was written, simply grew up with, ancient, with the ancient church. Each document, being accepted as it was penned in the first century, was then passed on to Christians of the next century. So this foolishness about the Roman Emperor Constantine dropping books in the Bible is simply uneducated rumor. Fulfilled prophecies. Prophecies from the Old and New Testaments that have been fulfilled also add credibility to the Bible. The scriptures predicted the rise and fall of great empires like Greece and Rome. 
and foretold the destruction of cities like Tyre and Sidon. Tyre's demise is recorded by ancient historians who tell how Alexander the Great lay siege to the city for seven months. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had failed in a 13-year attempt to capture the seacoast city and completely destroy its inhabitants. During the siege of 573 BC, much of the population of Tyre moved to its new island home, approximately half a mile from the land city. Here it remained surrounded by walls as high as 150 feet until judgment fell in 332 BC with the arrival of Alexander the Great. In the seven-month siege, he fulfilled the remainder of the prophecies in Zechariah and Ezekiel concerning the city at sea by completely destroying Tyre, killing 8,000 of its inhabitants and selling 30,000 of its population into slavery. To reach the island, he scraped up the dust and rubble of the old land city of Tyre, just like the Bible predicted, and cast them into the sea, building a 200-foot-wide causeway out to the island. Alexander's death and the murder of his two sons were also foretold in the scripture. Another startling prophecy was Jesus' detailed prediction of Jerusalem's destruction and the further spreading of the Jewish diaspora throughout the world, which is recorded in Luke 21. In AD 70, not only was Jerusalem destroyed by Titus, the future emperor of Rome, but another prediction of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, 1-2 came to pass, the complete destruction of the temple of God. Messianic prophecies. In the book of Daniel, the Bible prophesied the coming of the one and only Jewish Messiah prior to the temple's demise. So he had to come before that temple was destroyed. Isn't that just an interesting statement? The Old Testament prophets declared he would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, die by crucifixion, and be buried in a rich man's tomb. There was only one person who fits all of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament who lived before A.D. 70, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary. Yes, the Bible is an amazing book. So in our battle as the church in this modern day, we have to recognize the significance of the fight for the integrity of this book. And though this book is very commonplace in our day, many of you have multiple copies, it doesn't seem like we have a shortage of the Bible here in our country. It is under greater attack in our country than maybe ever before in our history. And I could probably say with confidence, greater than ever before in our country's history. With the movement of what I would have called the emergent movement about uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, it was a categorical undermining of the text of Scripture to question where it came from, to question the integrity of the books chosen in it, to question the writers of it, and to question if it really was, in fact, God's word. The leader of that entire movement, still around today, basically goes out of his way to say, this book is not God's word. To call it God's word is going away from what God himself would probably even want for us. And one of the other writers would say, this is not timeless, this is changing. So whereas we all may call it truth, it is changing truth. So what it meant to the people back then is not what it means today. Do you see a problem with that? It's based on the principle of what we call evolution. In other words, culture is evolving, so so does the truth of God. And so, as a result, we have this idea that has come in which alters the text of Scripture. Now it's okay, for the first time in Christian history, for scholars to get together and come up with their own version of the Bible. Well, this is what I think it says, because it needs to shift to match the culture. And so I'm, I'm pretty in tune with the culture, so this is what I think God means. And then that is sold as the Bible. Do you follow me? What is happening this entire while? We are losing the integrity of the foundation. Now man's voice is in this text. And whatever agenda someone has slips into the text. You'll notice that, for instance, the agenda to uh, clear the homosexual of any crime is a very clear agenda in many of the modern translations. They will remove anything said about homosexuality. Well, hey, I'm not all together happy about some of the indictments that come towards me in Scripture either. Eric, you're a sinner. What? Hey, I don't like that. Hey, take that back, Word of God. It doesn't. It just says it. It lets it fly, and Eric has to deal with it. So in our modern day, we have a changeover, an alteration of the text. And now we have an addition to the text where we are adding scripture by the day and the men that are hearing from God today are actually declaring that their inspiration is higher than the text of scripture. These are mainstream leaders 
And this is happening under our watch. As a result, I want to freshly remind us as the body of the seriousness of us maintaining the integrity. The integrity of our faith in the word of God. The word of God in text cannot be altered. When Joseph Smith came along, he did the exact same thing that we see today. Joseph Smith, the starter of that great Mormon religion. What he did was he had fresh revelation and it became higher than the word of God because it was newer. And once that happened, it led people astray. We are in a similar time with a similar battle and that battle hits very close to home. Because of the internet, the amount of teaching that is circulating in, even in through our body right now needs to be addressed, not because we desire to focus on all these things out there. We just desire to grow in grace and grow in Christ Jesus. But when there is a threat, we still need to address it. All right? So to be able to address it properly, I feel it's important that we rally afresh to the word of God in text and say, okay, are we in agreement, guys? This is where we stand. You test everything I say against that. And we test, as a result, everything that is said out there against the same thing. That's, that's how we know truth. It's not because Eric Ludi says it. It's because God says it. And if Eric Ludi's wrong, Eric Ludi needs to humble himself and be corrected to the word of God. And that goes for all of us. Our safety is God's word. It is also our salvation. It points to the treasure the X that marks the spot on that treasure map or the cross that marks the spot. It leads us all to that day, to that tree, to that man, and to what he did. And if we miss that, we miss the whole thing. What happens in Christianity if we empty out the power of that man and what he did on that cross? I don't know what's left. You say, no, we still have love, we still have mercy, we have kindness. Yeah, you have no power for it. You'll only have love, mercy, and kindness for those that you like. But those that spit in your face, rip out your beard as they did Christ, you're not going to have the stuff of heaven to respond with. There's only one way to get the stuff of heaven, and that's you need the Holy Spirit. And to get the Holy Spirit, you have to come to that cross. Well, how are you going to find the cross? You need to know that man. How are you going to know that man? That word. And the Holy Spirit will take you through the channel of that word to that man, to that cross, so that that Holy Spirit can dwell inside of you. And now this world can see the life of Christ in and through a believer. That which is invisible can once again be known in and through the glove of the church that is made in his image, that submits their life and rests upon his working inside of us so that that which is unseen can once again be seen in this world. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.